So welcome everybody to this week's episode of Activist Lawyer, Sarah in the studio with Jack. Hello everybody. Here too. And we are joined by the lovely Maria McCluskey. Uh, thanks Maria for coming on this rainy, <laughs> rainy Friday. <laughs> You're welcome. Lovely to be here, Sarah. You made nice the journey both. and it's lovely to have you in the studio, which is just great, um, great for us to have you here. So we're going to touch on a few issues today. Um, and go through your work, Maria, which is really important and really uh, kind of topical at the moment. And then we're going to talk a little bit about you, of Ooh. course, and your background. And I think that's what our listeners love to hear as well. Um, have different examples of people. You know, law is such a vast, a vast area to work in, and it's great to kind of have a variety of guests here. So we'll talk about that. But just by way of brief introduction to listeners, Maria is an immigration solicitor, so like myself at Children's Law Centre um, NI and she represents unaccompanied asylum seeking children. Maria provides advice and representation in their asylum claims and any other legal issues arising during the course of the application process. She also represents clients who are referred to the national referral mechanism as victims or potential victims of trafficking. Maria also tutors on a number of courses at the Institute of Professional Legal Studies, like a lot of our guests this year. And she was the chair of the Immigration Practitioners Group of the Law Society of NI, which is fantastic, from September 2017 until, that was two years ago, yeah. Yes. I remember, yeah, so just after we started here. And Maria, you're now the current chair of the Law Society's Human Rights and Equality Working Group. That's correct. And that was set up not too long ago. That was established in September last year, so it's just a year old. It's coming up to our year anniversary. Very good. That's fantastic. Well, thank you again for joining us. So really just, um, I suppose we'll start with the Children's Law Centre as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Um, how's it working there and, you know, your role a little bit, if we can go into that. Sure. Um, so I joined the Children's Law Centre three weeks before the lockdown oh. in um, <gasps> March of last year. Um, I have joined the organisation on the basis of its focus on on children's Mm -hmm. rights and um, I'll come on to just explain my background and my journey towards that. But the Children's Law Centre is an independent charitable organisation which works towards a society where children can participate and are valued and have their rights respected and guaranteed without discrimination. Um, So it's really working towards achieving the full potential of all children in our society and that's everyone under the age of 18. Even though we sometimes don't like to call them children, we refer to them as young people because I know that Mm -hmm. young people who are age 17 don't want to be called children, Children, but they are our clientele. They're your clientele. Gosh, okay. And just in terms of the area, so it's pretty much everything in terms of the service provision. That's right. And yours is very specific then. Um, Yes. So the immigration department that's... uh, CLC for short, you'll hear me saying CLC, um, was established in September 2019, just two years ago. So up until then, they didn't have a separate immigration department. They did provide some immigration advice, but often had to refer on to private practitioners, depending on the nature of the case Mm -hmm. or query. And um, it was established in 1987. uh, And since then, it has really become uh, experts in the fields of mental health um, special educational and disability needs mm-hmm. um, and ed- education in general. So they do a lot of policy and advocacy work in, in all of those areas. And we, we also have a, an advice line. So 
really anything that uh, children or parents of children who have yeah. issues can come to Children's Law Centre. They can provide initial advice and deal with the case if it's mm-hmm. within our expertise or refer onwards to other practitioners. So you have everything from, um, you know, mental health um, yeah. to the recent voucher scheme, the High Street Voucher Scheme, which our policy um, workers uh advocating on very strongly at the moment so okay. it's a wide I've wide seen range. that actually that, yeah, yeah I've seen a lot on that because it's kind of just going to miss yeah. young as you say young people like they've just kind of been forgotten yeah. about for the scheme yeah like, so. absolutely absolutely so it's really broad reaching and just in terms of your own height mix do you, would you be involved in the policy and kind of advocacy piece too? I know you represent yeah. um, children as well at hearings and so on. So is that, how do you manage it? <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> and if you ask me some days, I'll tell you I'm not oh. really managing it. But no, we, we have, um, because immigration and asylum, I suppose, is relatively new to mm. the organisation, um, my colleague and I, uh, Barbara Muldoon, um, who works with me in the immigration mm-hmm. department, we tend to end up doing a lot of the policy work okay. in that area. Yeah. So it's um, it's a challenge, but there's so much happening and I we know. feel that it's so important to voice the interests of children yeah. in all of these systems. And so we try and submit, um, you know, responses yeah. to consultations wherever we can um, and do... Um, as much as possible in our <laughs> within capacity um, yeah. to advance those issues. And it's so important to see that, um, you know, the the immigration, that, that that is a separate section within the organisation because thinking back, I remember in 2013 practising in Belfast, there was literally a handful of solicitors doing immigration and, you know, or some would dabble in it here and there and it was very general. But now it seems to be, when I came back from Dublin and moved back home again, a massive growth in terms of practitioners. But everybody seems to be quite specialised as well, you know. But so it's fantastic to see an organisation take on, you know, that role and it's so important with you know, I suppose numbers increasing as well and very um, significant challenges facing um, immigrants here. You know, we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's um, not going to end anytime soon. But just leading on from that, um, today, I suppose we've spoken about this in our, we're obviously immigration practitioners here as well. We do have a group of colleagues and I know one of them, Sinead Marmion, big shout out to Sinead, yeah. was on our, our podcast before. And there's a great group and it's growing, isn't it, of people um, who are practicing in immigration barristers and solicitors in Northern Ireland. We all check in with each other now and again and um, give each other some support. But I remember um, recently speaking to somebody about working with vulnerable um, adults and vulnerable people in general and how that really affects you as well. And I guess you're coming across probably uh, among the most vulnerable in our society, unaccompanied and separated children. I mean, how difficult is it to, I suppose, find, do you get used to it? Do you get support? How do you find working with um, children in those positions? So it's something that I have actually struggled with a bit, quite a bit recently uh, because of the nature of the cases. Mm-hmm. And I suppose um, the complexity, the the trauma, um, the trauma that you're seeing, the trauma that effectively you're putting the young people through again by making them repeat their story exactly. when they have repeated it time and time and time again. And, you know, I have clients who can't, first of all, find it very difficult to understand the system, um, find it der- very difficult to understand why they're being asked certain questions, find it very, very difficult to understand why they're being asked the same questions over and over again. 
And I suppose um, that has become quite stark for me recently with a, a, you know, a couple of cases in particular um, where I've instructed in a, in a few cases, I've had to instruct consultant psychiatrists. Mm. I've also instructed trafficking experts and um, a, a torture expert as well. Um, and hearing the stories, and I suppose what you do naturally when you hear anybody's story is that you you create a picture in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and that picture is just, it's the worst you could imagine. Um, and I've had to sort of take a breath a few yeah. times um, and I've had to ask for a bit of support with mm-hmm. that. And uh, I was very pleased that the Children's Law Centre actually recently organised a training event on vicarious trauma because when you're hearing these mm-hmm. stories effectively, you are experiencing secondary trauma. Obviously, nothing mm-hmm. like what anybody who's experienced it firsthand yeah. has it, you know, gone through. But it does take its toll. And I think probably when I started the work and, you know, it's it was an, a new area of law for me, really. Um, you know, I had some experience of immigration and asylum before but this was the first time where I was working entirely on mm-hmm. asylum cases and I'm keen to learn I'm keen to get it right I'm keen to um I suppose you know do as much as I can and, and then mm-hmm. I've got to a point now where I've realized I have to protect myself mm-hmm. so that I can do a good yeah. job for everybody that I'm working for um, and so I've recently actually reached out and asked for a bit more support mm-hmm. and, and I'm very pleased that Children's Law Centre are, are in the process of arranging that for me. Yeah. So it is an important aspect and, you know, I would have considered myself really resilient and, yeah. you know, very efficient and I get lots of stuff done. And, and recently I thought, yeah. oh my goodness, I have to slow it down a bit yeah. um, because I don't want to experience any, you know, I don't want to experience burnout. I don't want to get to the point where I have to say I can't do this anymore because I absolutely love working in this area. Yeah. The reward it's in terms of when, you know, my clients are granted asylum yeah. is like nothing it's else like nothing I've else. ever yeah. experienced before. Yeah. And, it, you know, in one sense, it makes it all worthwhile. But in another sense, there is a huge imbalance there because, yeah. you know, the vast majority of the time you're working on the cases and then, um, you know, it's only a very small part of the time that you get to yeah. deliver that amazing news to someone. Absolutely. And it's it's such rewarding work. But we have had people on, I think most of our guests who actually work in human rights. I mean, we've people working in criminal justice cases, legacy cases, immigration a couple of times. And everybody has the same challenge in terms of they bring it home and it's not a job that you can just leave and go off you could not possibly do that and I guess it takes a certain person but people get into this area because they're passionate you know they want to help people you know they're activist lawyers I guess as well but really you do have to think about that and I remember years ago when when I started out and I first worked with the Irish Refugee Council in Dublin and you know um, you were kind of thrown in the deep end at that time and you know I was just out of college and you're working with very very vulnerable adults and you did you took it home and you took it to heart and it was very very um you know just difficult to hear people's uh, stories and their journeys and again went through the same as you started working on asylum cases but you do have to you know take that into account the the toll it could have on on mental health for all practitioners and solicitors in, in general anyway in terms of taking on any you know can be very intense work but it's good to see organizations like ILPA as well I think now they've got this the um the immigration lawyers practitioners Association who have set up, I think, some, a mental health and well being mm. um, 
section to help support solicitors. So that's fantastic. But um, yeah, thanks for sharing that as well, Maria. And just again, I mean, we're not moving on to anything lighthearted here at all. We're going to touch on something that we've all spoken about recently, but maybe you'll give us uh, an indication as to how it affects your work and your clients. Um, just for listeners, it's the Nationality and Borders Bill. Now, we've spoken about our very first podcast, Jack's here with me. Yeah. We spoke about um, the government's a statement of changes and at that time around immigration which we're again adding to the hostile environment which is something we'll talk on again but things just seem to be getting um, more stringent when it comes to um, we'll say Pretty Patel's proposal for change and um, no, no clients none of our clients will escape and especially people who are in more vulnerable positions like asylum seekers so it's the Nationality and Borders Bill and it was introduced by Pretty Patel and we were talking there um, a while ago it's, at, it's coming through quite quickly but it's still at just about to come to committee stage. That's I right, think. yeah. So I think it's evidence yeah. stages at the moment um, and then it goes to committee stage. I think it's the 19th of October. Okay, so it's the 19th of October. So that's really soon. It's really soon. Yeah, so how, I mean, do you want to give us a little bit of insight into that maybe for listeners about how maybe it impacts your work? Yeah, so um, when the immigration plan was um, published earlier this year, there was a six-week window um, for uh, consultation um, which was a very, very narrow window, and I think it came at a time which was uh, around the Easter holidays. Um, a lot in it, in one sense, but lacking a lot of detail. Mm-hmm. And so working through the plan at that stage, obviously it was important for organisations like Children's Law Centre to look at it and put in a consultation response. Um, and really, the Nationality and Borders Bill is effectively the worst piece of legislation in terms of the protection for refugees since the Refugee Convention. Um, It seeks to distinguish and treat people differently depending on how they have arrived in the UK. The UK continually talks about these so-called safe and legal routes, Mm -hmm. of which I'm not sure there are any. Uh, There are some resettlement programmes, but they're few and far between, and effectively the UK has has not utilised that resettlement programme since March last year, at the start of the pandemic. And what it means is that probably about 95% of the clients that I've represented um, will feel the worst effects of this piece of legislation on the face of it as it is at the moment, because it seeks to treat um, people differently depending on how they have arrived. And that different treatment will result in them not ever being eligible for refugee status and this only being eligible for this new so-called temporary status um, which will leave them with no recourse to public funds. So how would they support, what does that mean exactly then? For So they're just well, get access? It, it's not entirely clear at yeah. the moment what it means but it what they're proposing in this um, legislation is that there will be um, asylum accommodation mm-hmm. um, for those who are in the system. Okay. They've talked as well about offshore processing. That's right. Um, remember that, yeah. uh, they have given no detail on what that mm. means. But again, it's a lot of, um, I suppose, political posturing mm. and um, effectively, in my view, trying to gain votes um, exactly. by sounding so-called strong on immigration. Yeah. Um, But what they're doing is that they're stepping away from their obligations under international treaties, the Refugee Convention, the Universal Mm -hmm. Universal Declaration on Human Rights. 
the European Convention on Human Rights, everything. Um, and ultimately, whilst this may be um, uh, just another in a long list of actions taken by the current government for their own reasons, um, it's the people who are subject to this legislation that are going to suffer the most. Mm. The inadmissibility rules that were introduced at the start of this year, which we presume are going to be reflected in the legislation, mean that the government are going to determine whether people have come through what they consider to be a safe country. And if on that basis they are either they've come through a country or there's evidence that they've been in a, a country that the UK considers safe, the UK is going to attempt to remove them to that country or to any other country, safe country in the world that will take the individual. At the minute, the UK hasn't secured any agreements yeah. with any third countries. Um, and, I mean, actions that they're taking at the moment, particularly, for example, with regards to France, would suggest that they're never going to secure any such agreements. So in the meantime, um, they will not look at a an asylum claim from an individual and they will delay looking at the case for at least six months. And only then after, if they can't return them to any country, they will consider the application. Wow. And then the individual will only potentially be able to, or will only be granted this temporary status. So it really seems just so punitive and I don't know, I mean, it seems to be void of any understanding of the whole process involving a refugee applicant or applying for asylum. And you've heard so many commentators who actually work in the area speak about it, that it just makes no sense. This whole, you've touched on there about the safe routes. I mean, it seems to just ignore the reality mm-hmm. as to how people arrive here and how people have been arriving in the UK and obviously when I worked in Ireland the same thing for years and years now and so it seems that they're doing anything in their power to prevent someone from integrating into British society by not giving them any public funding keeping them in certain it's the hostile environment at its very yeah. finest and pushing it? everything Absolutely. down the road to make these people more vulnerable more vulnerable more vulnerable yeah so but they just have no chance. It's startling that this affects so many of your clients who are already extremely vulnerable. Extremely I mean, how vulnerable. How is that going to look? I don't know that they care how yeah. it looks. I mean, in my mind, to my, to my mind, they have created these so-called crises in the run-up to the introduction of this legislation. Um, they have created a, a crisis, as they call it, in the English yeah. Channel. And I mean, the actions they're taking in that regard are absolutely deplorable. Um, but they're also creating a crisis in relation to the intake um, units um, where they're saying we don't have accommodation mm-hmm. and recently we saw them being housed in uh, detention centres, you know, new yeah. newly arrived, unaccompanied minors being housed, you know, in uh, immigration centres, yeah. um, sleeping on seats, sleeping on the floor. And, and these are children of all ages. Yeah. yeah. And, and, oh. and they call this a crisis when in fact, you know, there are accommodation sites available. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if they really wanted to, they could um, improve the system so that children are um, put into accommodation that's suitable to their mm-hmm. needs when they arrive. Um, and, you know, I, I just think that everything is a run-up to this, and so we have yeah. to become tough on immigration. And when you look at the number mm-hmm. of people who have crossed the English Channel, compared to the number of asylum applications, um, you know, 
it's uh, it's probably say last year I think in 2020 there were somewhere in the region of 8,400 um, crossings in the English mm-hmm. Channel and then there were something like 29,000 or 29,500 asylum applications so it you know there are people coming by other means but when you yeah. look at this year when airports have been closed mm-hmm. so more people are are, are you, you know getting to the UK by whatever way they whatever can means, yeah. and they pay um, smugglers to get them mm-hmm. to where they want to go and the thing about it is is you know I keep seeing it everywhere I keep seeing it on social media why didn't they stay you know in France yeah. why didn't they stay yeah. in Greece it was safe there mm. there's no obligation on anyone to claim asylum there's no legal obligation yeah. to claim asylum in a first country yeah. that is those are rules that the UK have introduced mm. and it's a myth that people kind of flout especially exactly. through the media I mean yeah uh-huh um and I mean, the Refugee Convention states nothing of the sorts. Uh-huh. And it also states that um, people should not be penalised for their mode of arrival. So, yeah. you know, what the UK government are doing here is effectively, in, you know, to my mind, in breach of the Refugee Convention. And it will be subject to challenge. And I mean, I think we will be wrapped up in legal challenges for years and years to come if yeah. the, the legislation is introduced. It's inevitable. But as you said, this is a political war on you know immigration and it has been for, what, yeah. the past seven, eight years as well yeah. around the whole Brexit referendum. And this is just a spin-off from that yeah. that we've spoken about here. But in reality, and just, I know we've spoken about unaccompanied minors and I, sometimes I take it for granted, obviously, because I've worked in immigration before. But can you explain just to listeners you know how do you define somebody who arrives as an unaccompanied minor or a separated child in in terms of applying for asylum okay so um it is any young person under the age of 18 who arrives in the uk and who has no um, parent or guardian or anyone exercising parental rights in relation to that child Mm -hmm. so that's broadly the definition okay gosh yeah so really a tough um i suppose your policy section as well like when you're working on that you'll be uh, really having that at the forefront of your mind yeah and how the bill progresses so we'll watch with Mm -hmm. bated breath i know and the one thing i would say is that at the moment the government has given assurances to different organizations that um children will not be subject to this legislation but there's absolutely nothing in the legislation at the moment that excludes them from the provisions of it um and so we have, um, you know, that children will be, they be subject to these inadmissibility mm-hmm. rules on the face of it, yes, which means the children that we would represent um, will not be entitled, if it goes forward, to refugee status, despite the fact that of those clients, the vast majority actually have been granted refugee yeah. status. So it shows that they are entitled to protection under the Refugee Convention and under this new legislation, they won't get they it. Won't get and it. as we're saying, you can't rely on promises from no, the current I government mean, don't know for, for anything yeah. that they're going to do or not do. It's quite startling, really. And it's in reality, I mean, it's devastating for people who will be affected by it. But all we see is the bluster in the media around it. Um, so we'll you know, f- follow how that, yeah. that And you also goes. see on the news and stuff that the increase in punishments is only going to affect traffickers. But when obviously doing a bit of research for you come on and you look at the legislation proposed, the increase in punishment for illegal routes doesn't just affect traffickers, it affects anybody who comes in. So I was reading there, it's increased from like six months to four years. So they're they're presenting this thing that they're 
preventing tra- human trafficking through the legal channels, but it affects those who are vulnerable. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the uh, immigration plan was published earlier this year, that you know the Home Secretary talked about wanting to make it a fairer system and wanting to protect um, refugees. Mm-hmm. And when you looked at the plan, we actually looked at it closely, and um, the words criminal and criminality are pe- appeared in the plan 45 times. Safeguarding appeared four times. Mm. And on three of those occasions, they were referring to the safeguarding of non-migrant children from adult asylum seekers. Wow. (laughs) And that is just, uh, that just highlights their their headspace when they're creating. Exactly. No mention whatsoever of, um, you know, the Home Secretary's obligations under Section 55 of the Border Citizenship and Immigration Act 2009. Um which, you know, is, is telling in and of itself. You know, they talk about children, but they have given absolutely, if they have given any thought, they've mm-hmm. completely disregarded it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And it's similar to the language we've seen as well with the around the EU settlement scheme and even the withdrawal agreement in that a real shift away from, you know, what, what they promised, which yeah. was to basically provide EU citizens with this easily facilitated access to residency here whereas you know they really focus on the criminality element of it as well so um, no change there but we'll definitely get back um, in touch to see how matters evolve around that and it's something that's very topical at the moment around our immigration group as well I know so just Marie as well on top of your work we spoke a little bit there about um, the fact that you are also the chair of the Law Society's Human Rights and Equality working group a new newly established group a year into its existence how is that going first of all and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about your background as to how you got to where you are today sure no problem so the human rights and equality working group was established in um, September last year 2020 um, and it followed the restructuring of the law society's council Um, it has become a working group rather than a committee um, because it was felt that being part of the committee system slightly hamstrung a committee of that nature in terms of reacting um, and you know doing some work on critical human rights issues which are quite time sensitive. So it was to give it a wee bit more informality so that um, the group could react to events that were happening around the world, run events without it all yeah. having to go through the formal committee structure of the Law Society um, Council. So in terms of how it's been working, I mean, it's, it's uh, to, to my mind, although I am biased, <laughs> I, think they, I think the group has done amazing work in the very short time that it's been up and running. Very difficult time. That yeah, very yeah. difficult time trying to sort of react um, or deal with a lot of issues coming up which um, impact human rights and... I mean, you could nearly have a full-time job doing it, but the members of the group, there are currently 10 members, if members memory serves, I think 11. We've recently had a co-opted member. Um, and, you know, they're so enthusiastic. Yeah. They're broad sort of range, um, level of experience of practitioners mm-hmm. and very, very committed to the work. So mm-hmm. we met every month between September and um, December last year and then... I think bi-monthly thereafter. And we've done everything from um, giving evidence to the Ad Hoc Committee on the Bill of Rights at Stormont um, to um, 
informing the Law Society's response to the Independent Review of the Human Rights Act, um, attending a roadshow um, event, um, attending um, different events in relation to the Independent Review of the Human Rights Act. And I suppose our biggest piece of work this year has been focused on the legal profession. And mm-hmm. um, we've been working very hard on that since about March this year because members thought collectively, you know, there are so many things going on that we could be working on. Yeah. But as a profession, we need to look at ourselves first. How diverse and equal are we? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's funny, I mentioned that to some people and they say, well, not at all. Yeah, you have your work cut out for you, I think. Um, and I suppose there is that perception out there just mm. based on experience. But we, we need to get the information first. So we're about to launch a survey among okay. the profession. Um, I'm not sure whether this podcast will go out before it launches because it's quite imminent. Um, but uh, I would be encouraging all um, members of the profession to respond to it because we really need to gather the information. Um, we're, we're asking questions in there about social mobility, you know, about... Um, level of earnings um you know as well as all all the other sort of diversity and equality questions that you can't imagine That's you know fantastic. and one thing also to think is qu- will be quite telling potentially you know about whether you've had a member of the family who's been a solicitor or barrister um so ah. just interesting in terms of getting into the profession and then progression within the, the profession insight. i would say you'll get quite good feedback i think so i hope so that. i think the profession will be, you know, happy to contribute to something because it's needed to have that piece of research, exactly. you know, and, and people will be interested in it. I know I will. Yeah, so we have engaged uh, Cognizance, um, independent uh, researchers, and when we brought this proposal to the Law Society Council, I mean, the support was overwhelming because yeah. I think, you know, in light of events that happened around the world last year and yeah, uh, work carried out by other organisations, they realised the real need for the Lost Society of Northern Ireland to, to carry out the survey and then yeah. to set in place a programme of events to, I suppose, deal with any of the, the issues mm-hmm. it, it brings up in terms of the results. So when does the survey? We don't have a, a date uh, because it's all, yeah. you know, it's amazing whenever you go through a survey and you don't realise we have poured over yeah. every word, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and we've te- we've carried out test runs yeah. and we're looking at the word and we're saying, should that word go before that word, you know? Yeah. Um, so I would expect that it will launch before the end of September and it will be open for two weeks. Wow. So I don't have an exact date. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. And so just, Maria, you said, I know you're very specialised now in, in terms of your practice area. And I think it's getting more like that, isn't it? In terms of solicitors in general, yeah. seem to be really honing in on their own <laughs> their own niche area of expertise. But you'd mentioned that previously, you'd done some asylum. Um, but what was the other, your, your background in terms of had you experience in any other areas of law and how did you get to where you are? Is this something that you naturally fell into or you know I think listeners like to hear how um, people working in human rights or public interest litigation etc mm. got into it so okay. do you want the long story give us <laughs> give us whatever give us the story we're here it's a rainy Friday uh, in Uri. Exactly. <laughs> okay so uh, I studied law and politics at Queen's uh, started in 2000 uh, coming up to my final year I thought I'm not going to do law <laughs> 
<laughs> it's too much reading. Do we all do, do that? Yeah. <laughs> we probably all go through that. And so I thought, a career in journalism, that's for me. So I started writing yeah. um, some articles and went to the Student Union to get them ah. published in the Student Union newspaper. And then something encouraged me into Student Union politics. Um, which I then uh, did for two years. and then That gives I, you some grinding, I would I'm say. Telling you, <laughs> that second year was uh, probably, I mean, it, it filled my CV for, sure? <laughs> for years wow. ahead. Um, so yeah, then Institute of Professional Legal Studies and I got a training contract at what was then Napier and Sons and it's now Napier Solicitors yeah. in Belfast, um, insolvency and bankruptcy specialists and also... Um, employment, convincing and uh-huh. litigation. So I went into the litigation department. I did that for many years and I really enjoyed it, cut my teeth on that. Um, and then just I suppose I had been doing it effectively for 14 years before I moved on. Um, but in, in the middle of all that, I decided, first of all, that I uh, wanted to do advanced advocacy because I always had a bit of a hankering to the barrister route, um, although I was happy then, you know, that with the solicitor route and being employed and not having all that yeah. responsibility. Um, so I did the advanced advocacy course and then I did a volunteering project, actually. This is what it really all came out of. Uh, and I went to Brazil for three months and I worked with an organisation called SERV uh, and Young Africa over there in Mozambique. And I kind of came back with more questions than answers just about global inequality and those sorts of issues. And so I decided to do a master's in human rights law at Queen's mm-hmm. on a part-time basis, which I started in 2015. And... At very early on, that was around the time of the Mediterranean crisis, and I decided I was going to focus on on immigration and asylum. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, what what particular area? And I, you know, I just thought there really was little to no defence of the UK's position in relation to unaccompanied minors. So that was uh, my subject for my dissertation. And coming towards the end of it, I was approached by NICRAS, Northern Ireland Community mm-hmm. of Refugees and Asylum Seekers, and th- they had a lot of clients who were saying, you know, the the I suppose the services they were getting from solicitors maybe wasn't as satisfactory as what they would have wanted. And um, uh, they asked me to produce a policy document on best practice for the provision of immigration legal advice services. It was a very long title, um, which I then produced over the following eight months. Um, Again, I was on a one day a week basis um, and still working in eight years, four days a week. And every time I kept coming to the mass, I'm like, can I I do this thing now? (laughs) They were very, very accommodating and very good to me. Um, I'm very supportive. And so at the launch of that document, um, I was approached by Bernardo's, who had just won the contract to provide the independent guardian service for unaccompanied um, minors. Mm -hmm. And they asked me to come on board on a consultancy basis to provide advice to the guardians and to the service about, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, matters which intersect with, you know, legal aspects. And then it was really then that I decided I I want to do this properly and I want mm-hmm. to invest my, my my time and my energy into it because as much as I started an interest when I was studying and I took a few cases at Napier's, it was very, very difficult to really know the subject yeah. when I wasn't doing it all the time. Um, and also, I suppose, wanting to do good. Um, and, and that's why I decided then when when... The job came up and actually I had decided that I didn't want to go and practice immigration law in a private um, solicitor's firm just because I wasn't as au fait with legal aid and all I heard was horror yeah. stories. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's interesting you say that. And we're, that's what we were we were chatting about. Um, our last recording was with pills and about different kind of routes into law and whether people practice or not. But that's interesting mm-hmm. that you're still, you've qualified, you're a practicing solicitor and an immigration solicitor. But you've that, you know, that was your choice then to go an alternative route to yeah. the norm, which mm-hmm. would have been to go into a firm. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think just the pressures of, you know, and all that come no matter what area of law you're practicing. You're right. No matter what area, that pressure is still there. And yeah. as you said, getting to grips with the legal aid says, I, I mean, I worked in Dublin for years and then went to Belfast where they didn't have legal aid for asylum or, you know, there's a completely different system in, mm-hmm. in the Republic of Ireland. And to get to grips with the green form and everything here, it was like a job in itself for me. It was so, <laughs> oh so, my goodness. so difficult. And you do hear, I mean, we ourselves, Maria, you know, we're in touch with a lot of immigration solicitors at the moment who are absolutely flooded. But the admin side that goes into managing, you know, those um, to being compliant with legal aid, mm-hmm. etc. is just... Yeah, I mean, I have bad. to do it now as part yeah. of my work a bit, but... <laughs> No. It's excruciating at times. It is. Um, and so it's unnecessary to yeah. have, I mean, it really needs reform, it does. I think. It does. Um, and we have spoken a little bit about that in this, so we'll, it's probably something we'll cover again. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. Then. So then, uh, as I say, it was only a specific ro- job that I yeah. would have went for, and this one came out, came, fit just came out, fit the bill. Great. And in fact, it, it is funny that... Um, when it first came out, I didn't get it first time round. Um, and when I heard who I, I sort of, in inverted commas, had lost it to or who had got it, um, I'd only heard of Barbara Muldoon by reputation. Yes. Um, and when I got a phone call a few months later to say, you know, we have a new solicitor, Barbara Muldoon, mm-hmm. um, and there's actually more work than she can handle. Will you join us? And I said, oh, well, this is actually the perfect outcome because now I'm working with someone who has so oh. much experience and a wealth of knowledge in the area. And really, she's fantastic. She is absolutely yeah. brilliant. Um, so to go in and also have the support of, of someone like her was amazing in terms of my, you know, introduction to it mm-hmm. on a sort of full time basis. Um, I really was so grateful for that because it has been the steepest learning curve of my yeah, life. Absolutely, I'm sure that's excellent. It's great to have the support, you know, to have two of you there. Mm-hmm. And as you said, Barbara is so experienced, um, you know, within within immigration in general. So it's lovely. So that's great. I yeah. mean, such a great journey. And. Our listeners uh, as well, it's something we, we speak about with all of our guests, obviously the name of the podcast is Activist <laughs> Lawyer. Oh. And it's so interesting. Everybody has their own kind of unique take on what that means either to them or what, you know, how they would encourage people, I suppose, to get into. So what, what are your thoughts, Maria, in terms of, mm-hmm. I don't know, our industry, law in general and activism and, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, you can become a bit, disillusion depending on you know what area of law you're in um and you might feel that you're sort of in that particular field and you don't have expertise elsewhere um but I actually made the conscious decision that despite having had nearly 15 years experience in a particular area that there was another area that I wanted to work in and it was a matter of Starting at, starting at the beginning, learning as much as I could, uh, going on as many courses. And in fact, I did the um, OISC um, exams because I thought, uh, well, if I'm ever going to know it, this is the way to know it. Um, and so for me, it was a big decision in one sense, but it was also the most natural decision because as much as I loved Napiers and the people in it, the work didn't really inspire me 
um, the way that when I was studying the masters, I really was energized. I wanted to do something about it, and I thought, well, I've got the perfect career. I didn't want to, you know, step mm-hmm. out of the career because I worked so hard to get the qualification, yeah. and I wanted then to use that, and and now effectively I'm doing that. Um, and I think, you know. When you surround people, as you say, the group that we're in at the moment, and I met Sinead Marmion when I was studying. We both studied the Masters together. That's when we met for the first time. And it was great to go on your lunch breaks and just mm. talk about all the stuff and get so passionate about it. Sinead's a great one. And, yeah. you know, we both had a, a word about this, the ranting that goes on among <laughs> immigration <laughs> practitioners, or I'd say human rights and practitioners in general is... is yeah, I know. And, and I part think of us. <laughs> it definitely is part of us, but also you know what the other person is going through whenever they're, you know, just yeah. having one of those you days do. where like... We're all in it together. Yeah, we're all in together. It's and some days support. you go... I don't think I can do this. And then somebody says, yeah, you have to, we we can all do it and we have to keep going. Um, So it is a great group. Um, I just hope that more people decide to specialise in this area because Mm -hmm. I do think uh, in this jurisdiction we are potentially lacking in um, immigration and asylum expert, legal expertise, particularly given what, you know, the what lies ahead of us exactly, um, yeah. and, and the need for it um, going forward. And I hope also that any um, private firms out there will invest in this um, area because I know the legal aid fees are atrocious, uh-huh. um, but it's a matter of, you know, battling the legal services agency on that and also maybe not putting pressure on the practitioners in those departments because it's so important if we I effectively I know this sounds really grandiose but if we want to live in, in the society that we you know hold as acceptable for mm-hmm. ourselves um, you know we have to ensure that for, for others as well and, and as you say law is a route um, mm-hmm. that we can use to affect those changes. That's so interesting. And that investment is king because without being able to provide that proper that the service, which we aren't, everyone's stretched at the mm-hmm. moment. And I don't think people realise the pressure on practitioners. It's no. e- extraordinary. And as you said, it could get worse yeah. given what lies ahead. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, anyone listening, I, I hope that um, rings a bell with some people as well. And that's a really, really great suggestion. So, I mean, thank you so much, Maria, You're for very welcome. joining us great, today. Yeah. Thank you very much. And um, we really look forward to following the work of the Children's Law Centre and all that you do. It's fantastic. And thank you for sharing your journey with us. You're very welcome. And it was lovely to be here and lovely to be invited. So thank you. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.